Welcome to a new universe, Dramaverse, where we have visionary and exploratory conversations about the future experience society. With me, Samira. And me, Made. Sarah Lefebvre is a games-based learning professional helping organizations to address complex challenges like climate change and unconscious bias. She's passionate about playful and gameful ways of learning and shows us that it's not the way forward only for children. Sarah is a driven changemaker and spaceholder for communities that develop and transform societies. In 2020, she started the magazine Ludogogy, which gives room for games-based learning professionals to contribute to the scene with different perspectives and angles through written content. In 2021, she co-created Speculative Optimism, which was a futures thinking-based project to first imagine and then realize optimistic futures for people and planet. She is a problem-solving ideas monger, open to new ideas, seemingly always in the process of creating something new. So welcome, Sarah, to Dramaverse. We are so excited to have you here on this podcast. Yes. Thank you. How are you me. doing? I'm I'm doing fine today. It's a lovely sunny day here in the UK. We're having a bit of a mini heat wave. So Ooh, well, you have great. a little bit of summer again. <laughs> yes, yes. It's sort of 20, 24 degrees, which is about 10 degrees warmer than it should be for this time of year. Yeah, and I don't know if you should say that that's nice, but it, it does sound a little bit nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's part of the problem, isn't it? It's quite yeah. enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, it is part of the problem. And we're going to get back a little bit to that. Maybe not so much uh, the climate, but it does affect everything. So it's not like we yeah. can talk about the future without, you know, considering all the complexities that we are dealing with. Indeed. But we thought that we would just, you know, dive straight into the juicy stuff. And we want to ask you about the Museum of Impossible Objects that we have noticed that you have come okay. up with. Tell uh, us a little bit. So the Museum of Impossible Objects, um, in, in physical form, it is a, a deck of 52 cards. Um, each of the cards represents uh, an exhibit in a, in a strange museum. Um, and the format of the cards is that on one side... Um, there is a picture of the object um, and a label such as you would see in a museum stuck on the wall explaining a little bit about the object. Um, and on the other side, there are some questions. Um, it, it's by way of being, um, I wouldn't say it's a game because the, it doesn't come with rules as such. People can use the, play it in whatever way they like. So I guess it's so I tried to create this moth, and what I actually got was this odd-looking creature that's clearly got two bodies yeah, and is yeah. a little bit of a mess, really. So I guess in a, in, in a lot of cases, people have gone, oh, got really very frustrated that they weren't getting what they were getting. But as I, I kept getting these really odd images, I thought, okay, well, let's just embrace that and tell some stories as if these images were real, as if they were real things. So with the space bender moth, for example, um, what I came up with, the story around that, was that the moth itself bent reality, and that's why it looked so odd. There's nothing There's nothing actually wrong with the moth. It's just the way we perceive it, because that, that's the way, that's a, I don't know, a camouflage-type um, uh, behaviour that the moth has, has developed to protect itself. 
So a combination of the wing markings and the way that the moth moves its wings when it's flying bends reality for a certain um, amount of uh, a certain space around it. Let me just, okay, so I should be able to flip this over. So we've got the moth here itself, and obviously we've got the, the little um, label that explains that. And on the other side are the questions. Now, um, I didn't sort of explain how the questions work. So um, the idea behind the questions is that the museum itself puts those questions into people's minds as they're wandering around the museum. Um, and there's also a book, um, which is an exhibit itself within the museum, where these stories all get written. So that's one way in which you, um, a facilitator, for example, could um, uh, frame um, an exercise around um, using the cards, getting people to to uh, sort of look into the book and work out what what um, what stories the the book is telling as they wander around the museum. So, but anyway, here is the, here are the, the questions, um, suggested questions, and obviously people can come up with their own questions as well. That's one of the sort of ideas behind it. Um, here are the suggested questions around the moth. Um, so how would you know that you were near a space bender moth? What would give it away? Because obviously you wouldn't be able to, to see the moth. We can only see this one because it's dead, so its powers are slightly diluted. Uh, why did they um, develop this ability? Um, but here's, a, here's a, a big question at the bottom. What are the potential commercial or military applications for the large-scale farming of these moths? So yeah. that kind of opens up questions around how we exploit nature, um, what we do with animals um, and sort of other parts of nature and so on. But yeah, so so to answer your question, um, as these really weird images started to emerge from my playing, um, I just started telling stories to make those images make sense. Um, and it very rapidly, probably about 12 images in, I, came, I, I sort of went, oh, this is like a really weird museum. <laughs> and I need to explore this further. <laughs> These things are in a really strange museum somewhere, and I need to I need to explore what this museum looks like and how it works. Yeah. And so you started exploring a little bit, and I I remember reading or hearing you talk about you know your your process in this that you started trying to, if I'm not completely wrong, that you started to sort of work on your prompts and try to decide more what you wanted the outcome to be but that, that mm. didn't really work as well as it like in a freer, ex more explorative way of approaching yes, it. Yes, it's true. So once I kind of realized I was in a museum, I, you, I think it's one of those things, You it, it completely reframes your expectations and then you constrain yourself. Um, so I, I started then being a bit more focused about it, but what came out was nowhere near as interesting. Mm. Um than me just um, putting in prompts that were just playful. So I, I discovered that if I if I became more businesslike about it, that didn't work as well as being playful, which I should really have realised, you know, in the area <laughs> I work in. <laughs> yeah, being a games-based professional, learning yeah. professional. How do you um, how do you title yourself? Uh, to a certain extent, it, it it sort of depends who I'm talking to. Uh, mm. One of the issues, so, I, so I've been in games-based learning probably about 20-odd years now. Um, and as many other people work in the field will probably tell you, it's a, it's a, it can be a really hard sell, um, particularly to the audience that I deal with, which is sort of like the corporate um, organisational um, audience. 
Um, first of all, you have to sell it into the people who are going to give you the money. Um, and quite a few of those are a bit sceptical about the idea of play and games because, you know, business <laughs> is business and it's very, very serious. Um, but even when you when you get down to the learners, mo even if they enjoy playing and they enjoy the games that you're playing and they learn from it, there's a, a, a bit of resistance um, in that people feel it it kind of challenges their self-image as a, a serious, responsible adult. Yes. Um, so you get a bit of resistance there. So um, I do find that I modify my language depending on who I'm talking to. Um, so I guess most of the time I probably refer to myself as a games-based learning professional because that sounds, well, professional. Yeah. <laughs> um, but other times... Uh, if I'm if I'm talking to other people in the field, I will, you know, I will maybe call myself a games designer, um, something like that. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, and I don't know if you want to uh, quit uh, sharing screen, so maybe the the yep, sound is a little bit better. But these are really uh, interesting, but also beautiful images. Yes, I would say I'm. I'm really. I'm surprised. Like hearing your journey with Mid Journey to come to these images, I think they are beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's strange because as Mid Journey has has improved, um, I've had to return to the old algorithm to get similarly interesting images because what Mid Journey and a lot of AIs are are doing is attempting to become more uh, realistic, I suppose. And and <sighs> and I think that kind of loses some of the charm because you might as well just take a photograph. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I think that's the most important uh, important thing that, uh, about everything you're saying and the, the most interesting also is how we have stopped being playful mm -hmm. and uh, that AI now uh, has also stopped kind of being playful and uh, mm -hmm. we need to be more playful in the learning process and in, in, in life generally, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm I'm quite militant about that, and my my sort of theory is that play and learning are exactly the same thing. Yeah. And I mean, it's not my my theory. You know, there are plenty of other games um, and learning theorists who've come up with that idea before me. Bernard Suits being probably the most notable of those. Um, but without without play, there is no learning. Um, and one of the one of the things that uh, I come up against time and time again, and it's related to this idea that you know if you're if you're an adult and you're in your workplace, you shouldn't be you shouldn't be playing because you shouldn't be having fun. So <laughs> um, <laughs> <was> sad. <laughs> I, yeah, but I, I I and I come up against the idea that the only real reason for play and learning is to kind of sugar the pill, um, mm. because it's the idea that learning is 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 hard and it's not much fun and people don't really want to do it, especially in a in a work setting. They don't have time for it because it gets in the way of their real jobs and all of that sort of thing. Um, so quite often when I'm talking to a, a potential client, they've got into their heads that what I'm actually doing is making learning fun so that people will actually engage with it. And of course, it's far more than that. And that really sells games-based learning very short. It's uh, it, it's uh, you know, a pedagogy in its own right, not just a piece of sort of decoration that you stick on the top to make something acceptable. Um, and I like to look at it the other way around. Um, and if you look at the games that have stood the test of time, things like chess and Go and so on, the only reason that they're fun 
is because that you are constantly learning. Um, and games where you don't learn go away very quickly. So, I mean, you can play noughts and crosses, you know, as a child over and over again. But pretty soon, probably when you reach the age of about 10 or 11, you realise that it's not actually much fun because you can learn a formula. Um, and once you're playing somebody who also knows the formula, you will always have a draw. So it's never going to be a fun game ever again, really. Um, so to me, play and learning are exactly the same thing. Um, and if we looked at it more from the other way around, it would be a, a lot better to go, well, how can we how can we construct fun experiences out of learning rather than, you know, how can we make learning out of games? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm I'm also, I'm thinking um, also about um, your sort of like parallel. I, I maybe it's not a parallel career. I'm sort of seeing it as as different sides of what you're doing. But one part is the games based learning. But you have also um, a bit of futurism in your um, like in your professionalism and and um, optimistic. Uh, how do you call it? Optimistic speculative design. Speculative optimism. Yeah. Yes. So thank you. I, I guess this... that really uh, it really comes out of the learning areas that I'm interested in. So as I say, I'm interested in um, helping people to 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 learn and to develop and to take action around these these big wicked problems like climate change and so on. Um, so inevitably, um, that means that most of my learning practice is tied up in in taking action for a better future I suppose um, I guess most learning's about that but um, I suppose when you're actually have an issue issues based learning I suppose is potentially going to it's going to be more obvious I suppose in your practice um, so speculative optimism what that grew out of so that was um, that was a project but it's also a practice if you like um, so my last proper job before I started working for myself again um, was working for an environmental NGO um, and we were working with uh, big organisations, usually financial in institutions I was working with, um, looking at how they could embed sustainability and sort of environmental awareness in their in their business. Um, so I was involved in designing and delivering sort of fairly uh, big uh, long-term learning programs with these with these organizations uh, and quite a lot of that was around the idea of really telling them how it is around climate change you know giving them some sense of the reality of what was actually happening and what could potentially happen in the future and um, what used to come out of that was uh, very much that at the end of these sort of two days, three days, sometimes three week um, learning experiences, people would come out quite changed, quite moved. Um, I've been in sort of experiences where people have, you know, sort of hardened bankers and so on have ended up with it at the end of these things in tears. Um, so that they would they would have a really big immediate impact, um, these learning programs, and people would leave really fired up with what they were going to do the projects they were going to carry out in the organization and so on but um, and we would also follow up with them later on to see how you know their action planning had gone and one of the things that that happened was that the learning just died on um sort of contact with business as usual so people didn't have time um 
this is a slightly different issue from what I was approaching with speculative optimism, but um, people didn't have time. They didn't have the support within the business. Maybe their, their, their line manager wasn't supportive of the action plan that they put in place and so on. But one of the other things that we used to find is that we were dealing with quite senior people um, who had the potential for putting in big projects and, and making big changes within the organisation. But because of what we told them and the way that we told them about, you know, what was going on, the enormity of it all, the, the, the sheer size of the crisis, that they would find themselves feeling helpless to do anything. So instead of coming up with, you know, new financial products or uh, new ideas for the way finance should go in the future, they'd go, OK, well, maybe we should move the recycling bins so that people can get to them a bit easier. Maybe we should put up a sign. And these were their action plans in some cases. And it was sort of like, what? This <laughs> isn't what we wanted at all. And and it was really because we frightened them so much that they felt so helpless to actually do anything. So when I when I sort of started out on my own, one of the things I went looked at, and, and as you've probably seen from the Museum of Impossible Objects, I, I see storytelling as a really powerful tool um, in helping us to to think about what is, but also what what can be. Um, and I started looking at sort of solar punk and and similar genres in literature, and going, well, the most powerful stories. Um, and quite often these are stories in, in science fiction um, and uh, similar sort of genres are the stories that that give us a picture of a future that we can move towards. So rather than telling stories about, oh, this is the thing you really, really don't want to happen. This is the big, scary future. And you, you've got to try and come up with some way of avoiding that. Um, it seemed to me that it was far more useful telling people to, to come up with stories or helping people to come up with stories about something they wanted to move towards. And we see that. I mean, it's really obvious if we just think about this logically in our everyday life. If you've got a horrible job that you want to get out of, concentrating on the fact that your job is horrible and you want to get away from it doesn't move you forward. If you start thinking about the, the great job that you do want, then you can start working out where that is and start looking for it. So it's the same kind of idea. And that's that's what speculative optimism is about. It's about telling these optimistic stories about what the future could look like to help people to move towards that rather than um, having an avoidance mindset of um, oh, a flood's coming. You know, we want to avoid having a flood. It's just like, OK, um, what would it look like if we weren't having floods? What would the how, how would the town be built? How would um, what would people be doing? Uh, what would be the policy within the town that doesn't flood? So, yeah, yeah. I think this is a really nice bridge as well, um, talking a little bit more about culture and the future of culture, since this yeah. is like the the area that we talk mostly about in this podcast and. Um, I think for a lot of people, if you even want to call it an industry, but within this industry, um, are are sort of in a in a place where it's like there's a lot of, uh, I mean, there's a lot of change going on constantly in different areas, mm. but not to mention um, 
the technological changes that have (laughs) obviously just swooped in uh, and changed our lives completely. But where it can also be a little bit difficult to find, you know, what might my identity be in this new future that is like unfolding as we speak. Uh, We can see it, but we might not be able to see ourselves in this future. How can this way of approaching the future be helpful uh, for um, culture, would you say, specifically? So uh, I think uh, uh, I think it was Salman Rushdie that said man is a storytelling animal um, and mm-hmm. then sort of went on to explain that, you know, we're the only only creature that tells itself stories about um, what it is to be human and, and what that means and so on. And I think games-based learning and, and particularly games that are based in storytelling give us, give us the option to open our minds um, and... The possibilities are literally endless once you once you kind of open your mind and start to tell yourself those stories. So I think it's a it's a it's a kind of practice of unlimiting yourself. Mm-hmm. Um and so I, I guess some of the things that I've been thinking about recently in terms of, of the future and in terms of technology, I don't know if this is quite what you were asking, um, but I can certainly see that with with AI. I feel like I've embraced it, but I know obviously there are ethical issues around it and that some people are not quite so certain. And this there certainly feels like in sort of in the air, there's this feeling that you've got to you've got to learn how to use it and you've got to get on board because if you don't, you'll get left behind. But it feels like there's also these other stories that are going on underneath. And one of the sort of abiding and most um, optimistic narratives, I think, that's 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 underneath all of that is that, yes, there there is this there is this, you know, amazing technological tool. But that gives us greater space to be human. Um, and you can you can see some of the trends that are sort of opening up as a result of that. So I'm. Um, um, one of the things that I'm um, concentrating on at the moment personally is I'm trying to give myself more time to um, indulge in my art practice. And I've been looking at a, a, a lot at what other people are doing. And there's a, there's a massive movement towards um, embracing the natural world and stepping away from technology. Um, and I think that's something I sort of feel like I'm rambling slightly here. I think that's something wow. that, that AI and some of those technologies will uh, ironically allow us to do because it'll give us more time to indulge that human creativity Um, because we can offload some of this, some of the sort of drudgery and and the stuff that can be done by technology to, to technology while we explore creativity in a more human way and in a more um, visceral and and hands-on kind of way. Yeah, and I'm fairly and sure would that you didn't say, answer your question at all. Yeah. Sorry, no, but this is great. But would you say also, like, just sort of taking that a little bit further, would you say that yeah. that is also sort of a choice that you have to make? Uh, speaking of, you know, storytelling, but also about um, that you can open yourself up to a more positive future, maybe with the help of some of these tools. So that is sort of, um, if you use that as a baseline, you can also move towards this what you're talking about the more like humanizing maybe um time here that we have here uh on planet earth um yeah as opposed to like being more run by uh, this like 
really dark uh, narrative of of the future. Yeah, and it, I mean, it is definitely a choice, and it and it's I mean, it's simple, but it's not easy mm. because I think we are constantly being driven by. Um, I, I mean, there are these mega narratives that 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 go on, which um, we are part of, despite ourselves. So things like you know, capitalism and the idea of growth, which is is problematic, especially in the times of sort of uh, climate change, because that's how that's how we've got here. Um, you know, because because we are driven by the idea that growth is good. That's how we've got to this situation where we've degraded nature to such an extent that we're reaching all these tipping points. It's how we've got to, well, however many parts per million, I think it's 416 parts per million that's pretty stable at the moment, uh, CO2 in the atmosphere and so on. Um, so it's not it's not easy for us to disentangle ourselves from those narratives um, at all. And I think... You know, looking at because I've been immersing myself in a in a in a lot of art recently, going and seeing a lot of exhibitions, um, seeing what other people are doing, um, and I think it is the creatives, the artists, the storytellers, who are doing this stuff because they are naturally open to those creative forces. Mm -hmm. um, but opening up other people who are being told, well, you know, what you need to do is is be productive. What you need to do is is contribute to growth, getting all of those people to open themselves up to these possibilities. It's it's very simple, but it's not going to be easy at all. Yeah. So is that, would you say, like a part of this this process of, you know, how you can use uh, the deck, for example, or use mm. uh, different ways of exploring the future? That is part of this whole, you know, opening up. It's, it's a time-consuming yeah. process that we sort of have to move Yes, I mean, you know, in my in my own small way, I suppose that you know, just the people who are exposed to to the games based learning that I do and the games based learning that other people do. But it, I I think that it's it's a small wedge that you're driving into people's perception of the world, mm -hmm. um, and actually bringing the ideas of play and storytelling into people's everyday lives when they're not used to it. They're not. They haven't. Well, again, as I said, you know, people's. Um, self-image about who they are as adults is very much divorced from play in many ways um, and I hope that the rise of games-based learning within organizations is a hopeful signal that people are um, opening themselves up to new possibilities and, and will you know realize that there is this this rich creative vein within themselves and within you know the way that society works that they can tap into okay. so I suppose you know to a certain extent a slight bit of subversion I suppose in games-based learning and storytelling as a practice I hope I like to think so anyway <laughs> but it's for me it seems a bit like artistic in itself so to speak it's, it's it mm. seems like for me it it um it just moves a little bit closer to our own creative side and our own version of arts and culture, just yeah. being able to explore this more playful way of not just learning, but being. Yeah. Yeah, well, definitely. What would you say, like, do you, do you have any other um, trends or, or weak signals or anything that you, that you think will affect us in, in the 
Well, maybe not so near, but still like in the in the future. And that specifically will um, affect culture maybe more than other sectors or Well, I think the fallout from the pandemic has got to be sort of one of the biggest things. And and I think mm-hmm. the sort of notable areas around there is that is the is the working from home. Um and there are lots of implications from that. Um and I th- think people reclaiming uh their lives from from their work, if you like, um, because you're working from home. So when you finish work, you haven't got that that huge commute. Um, and so you're, people are spending more time with their families. They're discovering um, or rediscovering things, uh, pleasures um, that maybe were lost to them when they were you know, in the commute. And I know, obviously, it, it doesn't work for everybody. And there's a big drive for people to go back to work. Um, but even those people who who are being you know, have, having to go back to the office, they've now tasted that freedom, if you like, um, that uh, sort of being able to to live more and being more localised. Yeah. So I feel there's a, there's a few things that have come out of that. And one of them is, is, a, is, a, is a focus on mental health. Definitely, um, I've seen, I spend quite a lot of time on LinkedIn and there's definitely a, a big shift towards people thinking about how things impact their mental health um and self-care and so on and so forth so i think i think that's going to be something that's going to be quite um quite important in the future mm-hmm. is that is that that idea that we we need to look after ourselves um and it it ties in with the creativity if you like yeah. because we can't we can't function as creative human beings and that includes that includes in our work lives because if we're working well then we are creating things um but we need to look after those those cognitive resources look after our mental and physical health yeah um decentralization i guess is another thing uh, again something that's been going on for quite a long time sort of decentralization of production um, particularly of uh, sort of in the knowledge work sector, um, which has been brought about by the proliferation of software that we can use. But I guess that has been, again, brought to the fore by by the pandemic because it's people's work lives have literally become decentralised. So they have they've been have their employers have had to give them the resources to to produce and create outside of the office. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so I guess that leads to a more diverse range of voices as well across sort of creative platforms. Yeah. Um yeah. yeah. That's really interesting. Um and do you think it's like both because there are different things, uh, you know, the the whole um movement towards working more from home, which is, you know, part of the workforce part of the world uh that have you know moved towards that even though it's a, a bit of a backlash now um mm. going back to 
sort of a little bit uh, older, more traditional ways of working. But then we have the other version of this, the whole more localized thing where we can see, at least in Sweden, we've seen uh, during um, the pandemic that people uh, tend to move uh, out a little bit more towards like smaller towns or the countryside mm-hmm. and, and and things like that. So do, do you think those two work together, that it's more localized, but you also spend more time at home maybe with just family and friends? Is that like something you can see? Yes, definitely. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I know that there is the backlash to move back to the office, Mm. Um, but I think, um, I guess my biases are showing here, but I I think it's fairly obvious there's no really good reason for that unless you're, you know, you're heavily invested in uh, commercial property. I mean, I'm Mm. sure lots of people who are heavily invested in commercial property can see lots of good reasons (laughs) why we should go back to the office. Um, And people who you know managers who believe that they have to keep an eye on on their employers because they're not going to work if you don't keep an eye on them um but other than that i can't i can't see anybody because everybody has realized you know we all functioned perfectly well um i mean obviously some some businesses did go out of business but they were it wasn't really in the knowledge sector as such um that these things were going out of business it was hospitality and so on which you know they were because they had to shut down during lockdown and so on. Um, so everybody knows that we can actually do it, that we can actually work away from home and, you know, nothing's going to fall down apart from possibly people's property empires. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, and I, th- I think what it, if there is a continued drive towards people going back into the office, I think I think there will be a backlash. I mean, there have been a backlash with the quiet quitting sort of trend, if you like, for a while. Um, because I think people just want better quality of life now. They've tasted a better quality of life. And m- most people, unless you're a masochist, are not going to want to return to a worse quality of life. Mm. Um and the tools are all there. I mean, AI itself and, and other sort of technological advances, there are, if we look at it again in, a, in an optimistic way, the speculation around AI, if it's done properly, um, if there is, and, and this may require regulation and, and other things, but if it's done properly, what it can do is free us up um, to use our cognitive surplus much more creative endeavors and to have a better quality of life and to look after our mental health and prioritize family and and all of those things that are actually important (laughs) with those uh, signals that you just shared with us and that we agree with you on uh, (laughs) i mean there there's the 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 whole new way of uh looking into how you want to be more you how how you want to be more with family friends or how the local part that you were into and the technologies that we talked about do you think all of these parts and bits that has happened over the last three four years with the start with the pandemic and then the IEs like entrance into the world (laughs) uh, everything that's happened do you think that is going to affect the way we may create partake uh, and share culture in the future yes i mean 
absolutely. I mean, obviously, there is the, the there is a deep concern amongst creatives. Uh, I mean, it was certainly the case that for, you know, ten years ago, when people were talking about robots and and artificial intelligence, everybody was going, "Oh well, it, it will get rid of manual labour. The, the, the jobs that are going to be impacted are going to be in manufacturing." And in actual fact, the complete opposite has has, has proved to be the case. Um, whereas it, it appears that AI is uh, the jobs that are most impacted by AI are in the creative field, you know, uh, okay. copywriting, um, art, et cetera, et cetera. So obviously there is that there is that concern there. Um and I t- I tend to take the I tend to take the approach that it's a tool and we and we we can choose how to use that tool. Um, having said that, there are a lot of very clever people that I know who have got some very good arguments against why AI is a completely different case from, say, a hammer. Um, mm. and, and and I still haven't quite unpacked all of those arguments yet. So I'm I'm still tending more towards the idea that it's a tool, although probably a more complex tool than a hammer. Um, the, the the analogy I like to use is um, the sewing machine. So prior to the sewing machine being invented, um, you know, there were extremely skilled people, tailors, who would hand sew um, your suits and your clothes, and and their and their work was highly valued. So a bit like the situation where writers and 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 artists are now, um, their work was highly valued and sought after, uh, and so on and so forth. And then the sewing machine was invented. Now, what that didn't do is it didn't put tailors out of business. It, it What it did was it allowed tailors to do what they already did more quickly, more efficiently. It also democratised um, um, tailoring, so it allowed more people to enter into tailoring. It also democratised access to clothing, so it allowed poorer people to get well-made clothes. And I think a lot of people mistake that process of allowing a cheaper version of a, a product to cheapening everything. So, okay, the sewing machine was invented. Haute couture still exists. So you can still, if you want to, you can still pay thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars or pounds or kroner or whatever for um, for a dress. Um, but people can clothe themselves quite cheaply as well if they need to so to me it feels more like a sewing machine than anything else um and i think one of the things that people sometimes sort of forget about that is that it also allowed tailors to become much more creative in what they did in what they did so it's not only allowed them to be faster and more efficient and cheaper but it has also opened up ways of working that weren't possible before and i think that's the bit we need to em- embrace with ai is to actually go well what are what are the new possibilities that we couldn't actually do before um and not kind of immediately sort of assume that gloomy narrative of, uh, about everything is a race to the bottom because it's not necessarily and there are so there's so much um so many possibilities for partnership um, and collaboration between AI and, and and humanity to create things that we haven't even thought of yet. Yeah, but definitely, it, it's not. It doesn't. 
take away the need for human creativity or cheapen human creativity. It just enhances it, I think. But I, I I really, really like this analogy. And I would say that I'm not really, well, obviously not a specialist in AI either, but I do like it because it does give it a more of a optimistic touch. And I can really, truly see the whole narrative or how you can actually create a story, a vision, if you want, of the future with, with people who have gone through this exact thing that you're talking about with the sewing machine, but with um, AI and and creative arts in either way. It doesn't matter, you know, if it's um, like w- what kind of culture we're talking about here, but I can really see this, uh, this whole image yeah. and this story. So it's really nice. Hmm. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I like the, the way we have floated around the complexity of, of the world we live in basically because what we've talked about is like how the museum of impossible objects is is a like a tool for us to key up the pieces or the conversations that are hard to have to open up our minds uh, and to make change easy in movement of like going towards an optimistic way of and seeing possibilities with and I like the way also the analogy of, of like the sewing machine of how we can see uh, things from a positive perspective of how it can help and how we can manage things from mm-hmm. from that perspective. And and that is, I think you can totally like take it and, and put it on the arts and culture world of, of like the the journey of change, the journey mm-hmm. of embracing new possibilities and uh, and also the the possibility of making new arts and culture with help of uh, collaboration with AI or technology or other other humans that are um, that are creative and and want to mm-hmm. be part of this change. So it's really interesting, I think. Uh, and I and I love the I love the story about. The, the place that you worked where, where they just got blocked with all the opportunities. <laughs> yeah. So they started moving the beams uh, because I think that's that's a part of humanity, too, that we that we sometimes get totally blocked yeah. with all the possibilities. And um, we we don't see the possibilities. We see it as. Too much. I cannot yeah. handle it's too yeah. much, uh, and then and then you I can't, start. I can't doing... make a difference. So, so yeah, I, yeah. Or or the difference you make is is just move around the small bits and parts yeah. when you can be part of a bigger solution or be part of a movement towards something special that other people mm. can join into and and uh, be part of. So we're not mm. always alone either, but we can we can help each other. Mm go towards yeah. the better so it's yes. been it's been really great listening to you oh yeah. thank you thank you very much for having me it's been a, a fun chat <laughs> yeah yeah i think so too so uh, just to wrap up i'm just really curious to hear if you have any you know favorite stories about the you know optimistic uh, futures that you um have been a part of either just taken part of or been part of creating that you want to share with us okay so um out of the speculative optimism um project um 
the the idea, although it, it didn't come to pass in the end, but I am hoping to open the project up again. So it, it was basically a creative writing project, um, and it ran for about a year, and a few and quite a few people got involved. Um, and it was a combination of um, some basic futurist techniques for people who weren't aware of them, um, and sort of storytelling and narrative techniques as well to encourage people to write their own um, sort of stories of the future. Um, and every week I used to put out a new bit of bit of learning, either about writing or about futurism, and then there will be a challenge. Um, and one of the challenges one week was flash fiction. Um, so you'll be relieved this is quite short. <laughs> um, and so I got and, and I published quite a few of these um, flash fictions in my in my magazine, Ludagogy, which is my game space learning magazine. So um, here's an example of, of one of the stories that somebody wrote. Neighbours have a monthly dance party in the street in front of an elderly neighbour's small house that generates enough electric electricity to cool the house for a month. A local church brings the piezoelectric dance floor, which they purchase with grant money and supplies the DJ. Local police help shut down the street, but they don't dance. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. <laughs> yeah. And thank you for joining us here yeah. on Traumaverse. Thank you so it's much. Great talking to you. Thank you for having me. <laughs>